coming up on Chopper's Politics. I must say, I sort of look on at the Parliamentary Party now colleagues who I know do never have supported the Prime Minister personally and have never supported Brexit. They think it's a complete disaster. And I do wonder how they sleep at night. Hello and welcome to Chopper's Politics, your weekly wander through Westminster's halls of power and beyond. I'm Christopher Hope, the Associate Editor for Politics at the Daily Telegraph. Now I'm recording this in the basement of the Red Lion pub, but on the streets above me in Whitehall it's been a noisy week, not least because anti-Brexit campaigner Steve Bray had his speakers confiscated by police on Tuesday, the first day of the Police and Crime Bill coming into action. So I thought, who better to ask to join me in the Red Lion pub than Tory MP for Ashfield, Lee Anderson, who, as some people on social media will know, has regularly clashed with Steve Bray outside the gates of Parliament. And Westminster being Westminster, this week has been dominated to a small degree by reports that some Tory MPs might be looking at crossing the floor to join Labour amid fears of a Tory wipeout at the next general election. So I thought, let's call up Philip Lee, a former Tory MP who joined the Liberal Democrats at the height of the Brexit wars in 2019 to find out, well, how hard is it to cross the floor? But before that, this week saw Nicola Sturgeon, the SNP leader and Scottish First Minister, making clear her intentions to hold an Indy Ref 2, a second Scottish referendum on independence, next year. Her announcement blindsided Westminster to some extent because she has gone to the Supreme Court to see whether such a poll would be legal, given that the government in Westminster is highly unlikely to grant it. So who better to discuss what's going on in Scotland than David Mundell, the former Tory Scottish Secretary. David Mundell, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to be here. It's a big week. It's Scotland week for the royal family. And Nicola Sturgeon has used this to make some speeches, hasn't she? She's made some pledges about a new independence referendum. Indy Rev 2. Yeah, my immediate response to that is just give us a break. I mean, we can't just go on and on about independence indefinitely. We had a referendum eight years ago. It's clear now that Nicola Sturgeon and uh, nationalist uh, colleagues had no intention of respecting the outcome of that referendum, despite the fact they'd signed up to an agreement with the UK government to that effect. And this just started the day after. I remember the the day after the referendum, the campaign uh, for independence just started all over. Uh, again, and we've, it's, it's become this never ending. So now we've got Nicola Sturgeon's latest proposals uh, for a referendum. We've got a reference to the Supreme Court, which we don't know whether uh, that will be allowed or not. And then we've got the threat that if you know, we don't agree with her and we don't uh, accept her referendum, then she'll turn the next UK general election into a de facto referendum. What's going on? The polls are showing a, a narrow win again for now, some polls. Other polls are saying a much wider win for now. Why is she pushing this agenda now? I think Nicola Sturgeon is under a huge pressure from her activists within the SNP. They uh, are people who are just blindly obsessed, which she now gives the impression herself of being, with having a referendum, with independence, not taking into account any of the surrounding circumstances. I mean, we're hardly out of COVID. The NHS in Scotland you know, is still recovering from that. Huge challenges 
uh, that it's facing. We're heading into uh, the cost of living crisis, which is just uh, as acute in Scotland uh, as in the rest of the UK. We've got the backdrop of the war in Ukraine. We've got all these other issues. We've got a Scottish government that also on domestic policy is failing. Education standards, which was Scotland's your flagship. That is live, David Mundell. We have have general elections when those things happen, don't we? Why not not have referendums? Well, of course, we have the electoral cycle, but we have a choice in terms of the timing of a referendum. And, you know, it's clear most people in Scotland don't think that next year or any time soon is the right time to have another referendum. Even people I speak to who support independence don't think that this is the time. And I think... The other factor which will you know, come into uh, focus is that in the eight years since the 2014 referendum, the, those proposing independence haven't answered the big questions. You know, what is Scotland's currency going to be? What is the currency arrangement? It, we've seen in relation to the Northern Ireland Protocol how difficult it is in terms of cross-border trade on the same island. That issue hasn't been uh, resolved. The new the future of you know the future of the relationship uh, with the EU. Nobody can say definitively what it would be. I'm not saying that Scotland wouldn't be in the EU, but Nicola Sturgeon can't say that Scotland would be in the EU. It's incredibly well, some uncertain. Some of those questions asked about um, about Britain pre-Brexit. I mean, not on the currency, but on other areas. Lots of uncertainty. That's the nature of Brexit. It's about giving power back to governments to do what you want with that power. That's the point of Brexit. Well, I think that uh, you know most people uh, would uh, argue in relation to the Brexit debate that perhaps a lot of questions weren't you know fully uh, debated and investigated during the period uh, of of the referendum. So I think, in terms of Scotland, we saw that in 2014, and if we were to do it all over uh, again, then these issues should be fully. Uh, and completely debated. So, I mean, it is a pretty basic uh, question. What currency is an independent Scotland going to use? How are you going to resolve these issues of getting uh, goods across uh, the border? And then, of course, the other big issue, how are you going to cope with the huge decrease in capacity for public uh, spending. Where's the money going to come from? Now, all of these questions, you know, that there are answers, and there are people in Nicola Sturgeon's party and others who say, well, we want to be independent regardless of what the economic consequences are, what it does to public services, because we we sign up to the principle uh, of independence. But many, many other people you don't. What they want to know is that actually being independent would be better. And I think those making the case for independence have to demonstrate that being independent would be better than the deal uh, uh, that we have as part of the United and Kingdom. Said, it's eight years since the last Indy Ref in, in 2014. Um, I was in Scotland covering it for two weeks for The Telegraph and you were there, of course, at the time campaigning. It was said then by um, Alex Salmon, the then leader of the SNP, it was a once-in-a-generation moment, wasn't it? Now, I've looked up what a generation means. Um, and I, you and I are probably two generations old, but it's about 25 years involves children growing up and leaving school. I think many nationalists are very clear now 
they didn't mean that. It was said for the moment. It, it was said, in you fact, mean, to was, get their own people out to vote. It was a lie. It, well, it wasn't true. They didn't. They didn't mean it, uh, and they demonstrated that on the day after. Um, the referendum. The next day, there were people out campaigning uh, for uh, independence. So SNP MPs have said in the House of Commons it was a tactic to make sure that everybody who supported independence actually came out and voted because otherwise they would have missed uh, missed their chance. So that, I'm afraid, we're not going to be able to rely on. Is the SNP's difficulty that they exist to create an independent Scotland? That That's the end point and all policies must be viewed through that prism and, and therefore they will keep pushing for another vote in the ref three and four and five if they don't win the vote which they're holding next year well i think uh, we've got to wait and see whether there'll be uh, they'll a, a vote next year well there's, there's a reference to the supreme court it's not clear whether the supreme court will accept that reference because the procedures that are set out are that it's a bill once it's been passed by the Scottish uh, Parliament uh, that would be referred uh, to the Supreme Court as to whether it fell within the powers the of then? the Scottish so Parliament. The, they pass the bill in, in, in Scotland, then it goes to the Supreme Court to rule if they can have it against Section 30 of the Scotland Act. That, well, that's been the process as set out. What Nicola Surgeon has sought to do is to ask the Supreme Court ahead of the Scottish Parliament passing a bill. I mean, there are many people who suspect that the reason for that is so that, that she knows the Supreme Court will say no, and she will then be able to say, I wanted to have a referendum, but somebody has stopped me uh, from having it, and then I'm going to turn the next general election into a de facto independence referendum. And we've seen that SNP politicians can't agree on what the criteria for that would be, because some have said it's the majority of MPs, some have said it's the majority of, of votes cast. But most people who are voting in a general election are not doing so on a single issue. They're doing it from whether they like their MP, uh, whether they like particular policies a government's following, whether they want to see the change in the UK government or not. You know, to be you can't just assert that the general election is a referendum on uh, independence. That, you know, that that's contemptuous of the electorate. Is she trying to act now, have a vote while Johnson is there because he's so unpopular north of the border? I think uh, what's uh, clear is that people in Scotland don't actually see this issue in the context of individual personalities. Alex Salmond, who was a champion of independence, hugely unpopular now in Scotland uh, for all sorts of reasons. Because he's against the, Nicola Sturgeon, that's Well, the prime, the prime Minister, you know, he, he wouldn't uh, deny uh, the you know that he's not topped the the popularity polls in Scotland, but I don't think that people see it as well. Let's Scotland be independent so that Boris Johnson isn't prime minister, or let's vote against independence because we don't like Alex Salmond. It's a much bigger issue than individual politicians. What will you do? Will you campaign for the union, or will you boycott the vote if it happens next well, October? Well, I. Uh, We'll wait and see what the Supreme Court say, because I respect our constitutional uh, arrangements. I would be very, very surprised if the Supreme Court said that the Scottish Parliament had the power uh, for a referendum. There's no purpose in having a referendum which is not a real one, not having a pretend referendum. I mean, that, 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 that would just be ridiculous. But 
you know, if we go into the 20, uh, for, uh, 2024 or whenever uh, the general election is on the basis that the you know, SNP are proposing an independence referendum, I'll be saying to constituents, you know, I don't support that. Are you sympathetic to English people who look at all the money flowing north and the fact there's is it several hundred pounds more per head for Scots on, on their public services than in England? Are you sympathetic with some English people who might think, well, just go clear off then because... We are being, as a as a country, being more generous to you, and yet you seem to protest all the time I, I think about being part of the UK. I, I, I've argued for a long time that we have to make clearer the case to people in England and across the whole of the United Kingdom the benefits they get. Uh, from being part of the United Kingdom. You know, we've had these arguments in Scotland for a long time that are to a degree in Wales and obviously in Northern Ireland. We've got to make the case uh, for the benefits that England has uh, from being in the United Kingdom. I think they're very real. Uh, and that, what, that, are that, what, what are they? Should, well, I think for, uh, in, in the first instance, that the re, uh, it, it's about having that wider uh, marketplace. It's about uh, having shared values with people across uh, the whole of the country to allow the movement across the country and the economic benefits. It's also about defence benefits that we've seen uh, uh, from having our whole island as part of the same uh, defence uh, arrangements. That would be very different uh, if Scotland weren't part uh, of of the United Kingdom. But we're a family at heart. You know, we're always Do going you to have our, that we're always going to English, English people who, who hear this endless bleating well, about I, how unfair I, it is for Scots when I, they get so much more. More money than, well, than taxpayers I, uh, receive in this country, in in in, in the south border in England. What I recognise is that the case for the benefits of the United Kingdom aren't being you know aren't regularly made in England to the extent that they're made in the other parts of the United Kingdom, and that people sometimes confuse England and Britain. Uh, and they're quite, you know, the, there is no Britain without Scotland and Wales uh, um, as part of it. So, you know, it's very, very important uh, to understand the difference uh, that it would be from simply being England compared to being part of Britain. Here's an idea. You're really influential in Scottish uh, Conservative circles. You're a former Scottish secretary. For a long period, you're the only Scottish MP, Tory MP, north of the border. Why not take on Nicola Sturgeon on the, on the arguments you're making and beat her. What, why is it not risky to suppress this demand from, you know, 40% of the, of the people in Scotland want a referendum? Why not give it to them and then beat them on the arguments you're setting out today? We're not suppressing demand by not well, having you don't, you don't by, not, a vote. by not having uh, a referendum. It's quite clear from uh, polling in the immediate after effect aftermath of Nicola Sturgeon's statement that people in Scotland, the majority of people, do, don't want a, a, there to be another referendum, and that even people who support independence know what a divisive uh, event, uh, what a distracting event, uh, a referendum is, and that now is not the time to be having that. A event. Dave Mundell, um, former Scottish Secretary, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Now, the Conservative Party is going through something of an existential crisis in the wake of the double by-election defeat last week in the north and south of England. Should Boris Johnson focus on holding on to red wall seats that turned blue at the 2019 general election or retrench to the south? and fight off the resurgent Liberal Democrats. 
To answer that question, I thought it might be an idea to understand why people voted Tory for the first time in 2019. And who better to ask than Lee Anderson, the MP for Ashfield. Lee Anderson, welcome to Chopper's Politics. It's great to have you on. Thank you. It's been a long time coming. You're a former Labour councillor in Ashfield. You defected in 2018. You and your family voted Conservative for the first time at the 2019 election. I hope they voted for you because you're now the MP uh, for the area. You were a coal miner. Your dad was a coal miner. Why on earth are you a Tory MP? Well, that's a good question. Um, I can remember back in 2000, um, it was 2018, um, around the beginning of the year, I was in a Labour group meeting in Ashford because I was a councillor there. Um, one of the Momentum members said to me, um, have you ever read the works of Karl Marx? And I said, funnily enough, I haven't. He said, well, why don't you go off then and join the Tory party, Tory boy? So I thought, you know what, that's not a bad idea, actually. So I did. Two months later, then 18 months later, I was that man's member of parliament. So one thing about the Labour Party, they give great career advice. And actually, I made that same journey uh, over those 18 months. There's five or six million you know, red to blue voters, as we call them. So, mm-hmm. yes, I was... Yeah, I had a tough time to start off with when, when I made that journey, when I made that switch. All your friends, I mean, it's so tribal politics, all your pals are back in yeah. Labour, and you're literally crossing the floor. Yeah, I'm crossing the floor, yeah, and I got some abusive messages, texts, but, you what know... What was the worst thing that was said to you? We can bleep it out, Lee. <sighs> no, 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 yeah, you get in traitor, I hope you die, I hope you get cancer, I hope you go to hell. And that was when you joined the Tory party? That's when I joined the Tory party, uh, yeah. And then most people don't become MPs after that. What made you become an MP? Uh, well, it, we had a small association in Asheville, not many members, about 30, I think. So the first thing I, I did <laughs> as a as a uh, Tory councillor and, and the Tory party members got out there knocking on doors, campaigning, got the membership up to about 150 Got you know got the message out there, um, and then when we thought there was going to be an election the the following year, um, I was told by my membership you know or asked why didn't you put your name forward? So I did, got selected, and then eighteen months after me um, leaving the Labour Party, I was a Conservative MP in, in Ashfield. Must be the fastest route to being an MP from the Left and Labour Party in, in history. Must be, must be. Uh, well, yeah. I should ask the question that's dominating Westminster in the Red Line pub just over the road yeah. from here. Are you going to defect back to your old party? No, not not. There's, there's not a cat in hell's chance. I mean, the, the Labour Party for me, when I was in the Labour Party for all those years, it was like an abusive relationship. It was never the Labour Party I wanted it to be. And people keep saying, stay and fight, fight for the heart and soul. That's gone. That went many, many years ago, the heart and soul of the Labour Party. Completely out of touch. Don't represent the working classes anymore. Uh, and, and the irony is, the Conservative Party, who, who, let's be honest, I disliked with the passion in the 80s and 70s uh, and early 90s, they're now the party of the working classes. It's incredible. Um, and you're, what you, you're, the way you've been... Uh, again. I read that you've taken direct action against travellers establishing a camp near you. What happened there? Yeah. We had a situation in, in my home village where I was, where I was the councillor, where travellers kept turning up to this particular beauty spot. Uh, and trashing the place, causing thousands of pounds worth of damage, out thieving, out stealing pets, you know, threatening people. Uh, typical behaviour of this particular community uh, who was, you know, in our area at the time. And the council refused to put barriers up at the car park. I kept asking for barriers. They refused. So at the end of the day, the, the, when, when the travellers left the second time, I got two boulders and a JCB and I blocked the um, car park off and a presto. The travellers did not return. Um, barriers were installed a month later and I got a fixed penalty notice for fly tipping from the, from the <laughs> Labour Council <laughs> that's why you and Boris Johnson have a lot in common yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and you're probably proud of that, uh, that yeah notice. I'm a lawbreaker it's official <laughs> 
Um, you've also talked about um, ev- evicting nuisance council tenants. Yes. Um, Living in tents, what was that about? Yeah, that was before the election. In fact, I raised it in the chamber just a few days ago. Up and down the country, we have um, habitual criminals. These, these, these are lazy, bone-idle people that just make a life of crime. Um, and they're living in council houses, social housing, living rent-free, running their criminal activities from where they live, and making people's lives a misery on, Is that on fair the streets. That they, would, they would contest that, wouldn't they? Of course, <laughs> contest what? What you're saying about them? They were saying not bone idle. I mean, well, well, well they say they're not. Well, they won't go to work. They're probably very, very active in their in their thieving and, and robbing and criminal activity. So yeah, they put a lot of effort, a lot of time and effort in, into that. It, actually, I would argue it's easier to go to work. But these people don't deserve social housing when there's hard-working people on the waiting list waiting. Uh, and, I, and I say, send them to work for so you. you've got a record, you shouldn't get a council house. Well, not necessarily. I believe in second chances for everybody. Even you with your fixed pound Even me with my previous cool. criminal activity. <laughs> everybody deserves a second chance. But, you know, if you want to live in a civilised society, you have to contribute towards society. And the way you do that is by working, paying your taxes and being a good citizen. What is wrong with that? You got quite, quite a spat, didn't you, with um, campaign, poverty campaigners when you said have cookery lessons and how to cook cheaply, which I remember Anne Jenkin, Baroness Jenkin, Bernard Jenkin's <coughs> wife, saying something similar, hmm. how you can eat, live on a low budget if you have good cook, cookery lessons. You got monstered on Twitter again, didn't you? It's incredible, really. My, I up at my local food bank. I donate money to them. How often are you there? Um, not, not very often. Not as much as I like to be. Um, not since this um, last episode happened. No. I donate money out of my own pay packet. I deliver meals for them. Um, do lots of work. Do the cooking lessons with, with vulnerable people. But other MPs are teaching people basically how to cook on a, bu- on a budget. Because they can't. They don't know how to do it. Some, it's, it's some of the people that we were trying to help didn't even know what certain vegetables were. Or how to cook them. So there was collecting the food parcel, going home and throwing all the fresh. So what stuff do you say away. to these critics then, who on, on Twitter who pile into you as an uncaring Tory? Yeah, well, I say get a grip. Come to Ashfield. Come and see these people. I mean, I bought the press up. The press came, um, and I think that's the end of the story. Apart from the, some of the gutter press, like the Daily Mirror, they try and run and run with it. Uh, but at the end of the day, all I'm trying to do is help people who's who's less well off than and me. You're out there saying you're against taking the knee. You stopped watching England games. Is, it yeah. when they, is that still the case? Um, Have yeah, you relented? On I've them? not watched England now since well, yeah, before the last World Cup. I mean, I've sort of accepted now that if footballers want to to take take the knee, that's fair enough. I don't agree with it, but you know, we're living in it's it. It's a way it, of respecting, isn't it? Other, all all yeah, races. Yeah, I mean, that's what they're doing. I think it's not, so. not, not. I think it's seen as a political thing at the beginning. I think it's not that at all. I yeah, think. I think. I think the thing is, Chris, when when it was first happening with the knee, we were seeing riots on Whitehall here, and that 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 really got to me. We were seeing mm. policemen being mm. attacked. Mm. We were seeing Labour MPs. Was, uh, yeah, it was awful stuff. And then we've got our national football team. You know, we're in the we're in the three lions. Uh, you know, English lads out there. You know, kicking the ball about for our country. Yet there's other people doing the same symbols out there. That's basically mm. disrespecting our Queen, our our, our, our our democracy, and our place. And I don't think that's acceptable. All these, all the things you talked about, you, you know, are these the the values of the modern Tory party? Do you think what you're what you're describing, the the, the battles you fought uh, in Ashfield, is, is that have a lot in common with the values in, in Guildford, for example? I mean, that's what's so fascinating about you and who you stand for, because you are the you're the modern day Tory party. Yep, yep. Um, I've always said that people in places like Ashfield and in the Red Wall seats have always been conservative, um, socially conservative. They uh, they're aspirational. They respect that, you know. They respect our pleas. They they love Queen and country. They love the flag. They want their children to do a little bit better than them. They want their kids to have a good education. These are all conservative values. Mm. But what they've never done is voted conservative. 
And where do you think the centre of gravity is now, the Tory party? Well, that's a difficult one. Go on, um, name, I think, well, name, name, a, name an area of the country, you see. I find it fascinating. Well, I think the political geography has been turned on its head in this country. It's gone north to south, or south to north. So is it time the party um, let the Lib Dems win more seats in the south and move well, north? Well, I think we've always had it tough up north and in the Midlands. We've always had note. Our pits are gone, our factories are gone, our industry has gone. Um, so, you know, you can't threaten us with taking our jobs away or decimating our industry. That's gone. We're rebuilding. Um, and I think that the Labour Party have actually taken the, the North and the Midlands for granted, mm. uh, and we've seen that, and we've, we've voted with our feet. If Boris Johnson was here in the pub with, you, with today with me, sitting here, yeah. just you and me in the pub, what, what would you say to him? Well, when I say to Boris, um, I would say, Boss, you, you've got something that not many leaders has got. He's got that, uh, he's got that he charisma. He signed you up. Yeah, he's got that vision. I campaigned for him to be leader. I wish sometimes he wouldn't try and please everybody because I think he tries to please too many people. You know, sometimes in politics, you have to take a side. It's as simple as that. You can't sit on the fence. You've just got to go for it and think, you know, even Maggie, who I disliked with the passion back in the day, she, you knew where you stood with her. She, if she was winning to battle, she, was, she wasn't she was wavering. She'd, she'd see that ultimate goal. Is go Thatcher for it. a past and Johnson the future for you? Um, I'd like to see a, a bit of Maggie back. Uh, I you, like, know you can't stand her, even, even though I couldn't stand her at the time. But I actually agreed. You know, looking back, she is what this country needed at that time. You know, we was on our ass really uh, in this country. You know, the unions were running the place. Nothing was getting done. Is that tax cuts, Lee Anderson? Tax cuts, cut, cut, yeah, cut tax all day long. Or, you know, I can't think of any economy what's failed after cutting taxes. We're sitting here in Westminster. You've got one minute left before you yeah. leave. Outside, uh, Steve Bray is a campaigner. Yeah. Stop Brexit, Steve. Uh, I won't go into your various uh, on-street uh, contretemps with him, battles with him on Twitter, which are worth looking at if you haven't seen them yet. What's your problem with Steve Bray? I haven't got a problem with Steve Bray. He's, I mean, he is a, he is a prolific nuisance. Uh, my problem is, is is grown men hanging around the streets all day, dressed in silly outfits, uh, not contributing towards society. Isn't, now, that, isn't up to him, though? I mean, he's, yeah, yeah, it he's is. raising money to yeah. fund it. But when he's shouting out things you know, to, to Tory MPs... Not rude things, just well, well, yeah, political questions. Know, well, they're not political well, questions. Well, he shouts Tory scum at your Scum, generally. charlatans, you know, you thieves, you liars, cheats. No, that's, that's, it that's, does belittle... Because um, you're in this game for public service, right? You're trying to make life better yeah. for the people you, you're, you're, you're yeah, representing. Yeah. That's the... I, I, on the final note, I'll tell you what Steve Bray is. He's like that Japanese soldier wandering around a, a jungle island 40 years after the war's ended, no shoes and socks on, bayonet fix, still wanting to fight to the death over a lost cause. <laughs> That's Steve Bray. He's not, not going to stop, though. I know you're in favour of the, the, the efforts this week by the police to remove his amps. Um, which oh, look, is making I mean, him into a martyr. No, I mean, taking he is a nuisance with those amps. I mean, I don't. I think the, the songs are quite funny. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, I'm almost bye humming, bye Boris. Yes, I'm humming <laughs> them myself. Um, you know, as, as I walk by. But you know, it's the workers in on Whitehall and in the parliamentary offices that get it can't open the windows because they can't concentrate. Mm-hmm. Because is is well, perhaps just agree a volume level, not eleven, but yeah, five. Maybe, maybe. Because yeah. taking things away, he's raised eighty thousand quid overnight on Monday after the the police yeah. came. Yeah, the world's gone mad, hasn't it? What's your, and did you not think finally you and Steve Bray are actually quite similar? No, not at all. I don't walk around. Have you it, have you talked to him? Because he, I've tried to. I've tried to engage him, but he, he won't talk to you. He just shouts. He just go about. I think he only knows about three or four words. It's it's it's, it's charlatan, it scum, traitor. Stuff for, the, for the for the cameras, it is a freak show. He is um, he's a tourist attraction. And just finally, uh, Leanne, it's great to have you on. Very quickly on Thursday morning. Should Boris Johnson fight the next election as your leader? Yes. Why? Because he's a proven winner. Who else would you vote for if it weren't him? Me.
Lee Anderson, thank you for joining us today on Troubled Politics. Great to have you on. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, Lee Anderson is not joining the Labour Party. You heard it here first, folks. But the talk this week in Parliament has been the talk of possible defections to the Labour Party from the Tory benches. Coming up, I'll be talking to one Tory MP who did just that. And it wasn't easy. Right after this. If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast, Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this and click follow so you don't miss an update. Now this week, the chatter in Westminster has been all about whether any MPs, Tory MPs, may jump ship to join Labour. Weekend reports said six Tory MPs might do that. The Telegraph reported only three might do it. So what's it like to cross the floor in British politics? I called up Philip Lee who did just that in 2019 when he quit the Tories and joined the Liberal Democrats at the height of the Brexit wars. Philip Lee, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Yeah, well, it's good to be... Thank you for asking me. That's right, it's a long time they see, a former MP, of course. Now, we got you on because the the talk in Westminster this week has been about whether three or six Tory MPs might defect to Labour. And we were trying to think who has got a story to tell about defecting and how hard that is. And I thought of you because I've known you for years. Uh, You're an old pal from politics, but also you did cross the floor from the Conservative Party to the Liberal Democrats at the height of the Brexit saga, the Brexit wars. What's that like? It was, look, it wasn't an easy decision. I mean, even though... Um, I like to think my defection was on principle. I'm not so sure the the, the people who are be reportedly considering it at the moment, are, that's more to do with their bank balances, I think. It's to do with their financial security, by the sounds of it. Um, but on principle, I um, thought about it long and hard. It didn't happen overnight. I had uh, I was good friends with Alistair Carmichael. Uh, that's where the link was. And um, Alistair and I just chatted very relaxed way. There was no pressure on either side, really. And and then I guess the the elevation of Boris Johnson to being prime minister and what that I knew that was going to involve. And I think subsequently, since I've left politics, I think we've all seen that in Technicolor, the elevation of him, plus the people who came in with him, the direction of travel clearly was set for the Conservative Party to no longer be the party I could feel part comfortable in. Um, And I. so I sort of went away over the summer, but I sort of knew coming back that what I was going to do. And in fact, I brought it forward crossing the floor because of the the sort of prorogation lying to the Queen thing. And I thought, God, if they can do this, they're going to do anything. I need to act. So let's let's go now. And how did you go about who did you tell first, your family, your local party chairman, your friends in the House of Commons? Who do you speak to first? My wife. I mean, 100 um, percent. Was, was new all along. I'd had concerns for a number of months. It was a sort of incremental thing, so she knew. Um, and then I sort of close, I had a little close team who 
knew um they sort of didn't know when as such um and on the you know when when it was happening i i sort of informed all the relevant people including the association chairman at the time in advance and then just did it but i was you know i was nervous i sort of famously i was wearing an iWatch i one of those apple watches and it went absolutely berserk um because i was so tachycardic i mean my heart rate was going and it started sort of vibrating and flashing red at me when i was sat was in the chamber so i i mean the actual sort of personal thing it feels quite pressured and as you recall chris that whole that whole period in politics was incredibly febrile and challenging and pressured and everyone was very emotional on both sides of the argument actually at the time so uh, yeah it wasn't easy but but i sort of yeah once done it was it was it felt the right thing to do and it remains the case to you know to this day and the way you did it for memory uh, philip lee i think the first we knew about it was it was one of those amazing prime minister's questions moments wasn't it i think when you maybe crossed the floor just on the eve of that it was actually when the Prime Minister was standing up to talk about something related to Brexit and the European Union. And he was just he had just started his 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 speech to the chamber on September the 3rd, I think it was. And um, I, a, a, a colleague, uh, I'll leave it at that, a parliamentary colleague who was aware shortly before, had said uh, a couple of days before, said, I know what you should do. You should do it on that day at that point. He said, he said that's, that's powerful. Because don't forget, Chris, I was taking away uh, the government's working majority at that point. And so me moving like that, was 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 his was internally in parliamentary arithmetic terms quite significant and uh, that's right because so, i remember i remember watching it from from the house of commons press gallery um and it was it was september 2019 and that was the moment at which the government lost its majority wasn't it i think yes, from memory yes it was and you were you were the physical manifestation of that you were the physical manifestation of that moment happening i've never seen it before and, and maybe seen, never seen it again the actual moment at which physically, because you move seats in the House of Commons, that lost the government's majority. Yes, and and I was very conscious of that. In fact, I think at the time I was somewhat surprised there wasn't more of a, a response from the media here in the UK. Because what was interesting, the American media, by contrast, were very interested. So the Washington Post flew someone over, profile piece. Um, Stephen Colbert did a piece in which he references it, and that went viral. And it was very interesting, America, because they were going through all their sort of you know, trials and tribulations over Trump, they were looking at this thinking, how come there isn't a Republican? In fact, I recall there was a tweet by, a, by some American politico, which was liked a half a million times, referencing me and saying, how come we haven't got a congressman or a senator who can do this? So the Americans took an unexpectedly deep interest in, in what was, I thought, quite a modest sort of personal principled move. Uh, more so with the Americans than in any other part of the world. It was very, very interesting for me at sort of epicenter of it briefly. You know how media moves on very quickly. But in that sort of 48-hour yeah, period... Sorry, sorry. <laughs> you know, in that 48-hour period, I, 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 it, was, it, it was really noticeable how the British media were not as interested in me as foreign media, particularly the American media. Did you have any feedback from colleagues in, in the local association or friends of yours on, on, on the Tory benches? I wonder what they said. I mean, we can bleep out swear words. 
<laughs> well, the local association sort of leading members, I mean, my association had gone through some transformation in the preceding year or so, and uh, there was entryism all over the place. And so there was a, you know, they were not best pleased, but they were, those individuals who'd come in and wanted to get rid of me. So it was a mixed feeling, I think they sort of had, of, I'm glad to have got rid of him, but I can't believe he's done it, sort of, in this way, sort of, uh, response. There were some members of my local association who were personally supportive and indeed, you know, people who'd backed me locally followed me to, to run against Wokingham in, in Wokingham against John Redwood in the election. So it wasn't all negative, but no, it was not straightforward in local political terms at all. Um, but, you know, this is the thing about being a member of parliament. You're elected as a, on a Conservative manifesto or a Lib Dem manifesto, or whoever it is, but you're actually formally, so you, you're, you have the responsibility to, to act in the best interests of your constituents, and indeed the country, as a national politician. And that tension is difficult, and trying to, and also yourself, and your own conscience, and your own principles and values or what have you and, and and it came to the fore with me i had internal red lines chris and they were crossed over that whole affair and the elevation of someone who i thought was personally totally inappropriate for the role and uh, for lots of reasons which everybody knows in the background everyone knew about and not many people will talk about it but they all knew um and i just for me it was an internal red line had been crossed and that's why i did what i did it wasn't in my own personal political interest in terms of wanting a career and ministerial office and cabinet office and all that sort of thing. Indeed, the Prime Minister had, had offered me ministerial office in July of 2019. So. On that, I mean, you know, we're talking as, as, as friends outside of politics now, but I, you know, I think you had ambitions maybe to lead the party one day, you know, I don't know, and a lot of colleagues of yours do. I mean, I think, I think that was there when I talked to you sometimes, and, and, and you gave all that away. You gave, let me finish, you gave all that away for your principles, didn't you? Yes, it, but I would add that, that, that any ambitions I might have had, and actually most Tory MPs privately have these ambitions, Chris, as you well know, but any of those ambitions I might have had went up in smoke when the country voted for Brexit. It was pretty bloody obvious that the Conservative Party's membership were Brexit supporting. So you had to be seen. And indeed, you know, I'm pretty confident in asserting that the current prime minister really didn't care either way on the on, on the Brexit debate, but backed what he thought would advance his political career. And that's why he's where he is now. Do you regret anything? Do you regret um, making your stand on a matter of principle as you saw it? Um, do you look at colleagues of yours who swallowed their pride and didn't and now may be in the government and doing things you may have wanted to do in the, back then? Do you regret anything or do you think you made the right choice? Um, for me personally, I have no regrets whatsoever because I could not have lived with myself. Um, there's, there's compromise in politics. It can be a mucky business. Twas ever thus. I'm not an idealist. I'm not being naive. But there are there's a point where I think internally for me it was just not acceptable and I and I had to do what I did and the same applied to Sam Gima same applied to Gitto Beb there were it wasn't just me there were others who who behaved like that I must say I sort of look on at the parliamentary party now colleagues who I know do never have supported the prime minister personally and have never supported Brexit they think it's a complete disaster and yet they're there still there and I just look at them and I do wonder how they sleep at night just finally, Philip Lee, what's your advice to do, what's your advice to, to those to Redwall Tory MPs who are now considering defecting? What's your advice to them and, and how to go about it and what to think about and, and, and how to work, to work out in their heads if that's the right thing to do? 
yeah, on a personal, sort of on a human level, right, they think clearly about this because this is actually a more significant move than you realise uh, because all political parties have different cultures and different things going on. And by definition, you're always going to be associated, however fairly or not, with your past association with a political party. They don't want advice from me. They, they, far from it, in fact, I suspect the individual's concerned. I do look at it and do wonder how on earth in the space of two years, I have some sympathy with Boris Johnson here, how these characters can stand on a ticket to deliver the Brexit we've got with a prime minister that we've got, and then suddenly start saying, oh, no, no, I'm not happy with where this is going. In all credibility, I mean, God, they've got no credibility, Chris, and they've got no honour, really, um, because fundamentally what's been delivered is what was always promised. We knew what we were getting in terms of the Brexit that we've got, and we knew what we were getting in terms of the Prime Minister we've got. And whatever's happened since December 2019, none of it has come as a surprise to me, or the small uh, sort of list of names of people like Dominic and Grieve and Anna Seabury. We all sort of thought this was coming, and um, and it's happened. And we're sad. I'm sad about it personally. I don't want my country to be in this situation, but it is where it is. Well, Philip Lee, a life of public service, whatever you're doing. Thanks for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on and all the best to you. Absolute pleasure, Chris. Thanks for asking. Well, that's all for this week, listeners. I would love to know your thoughts on what our guests have discussed today. Please email me, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk or on Twitter, we're at chopperspodcast. For more from me, please sign up to my daily Choppers Politics newsletter, bringing you the best Westminster insights straight into your email inbox every weekday. Sign up for that, telegraph.co.uk forward slash politics newsletter. And do be sure to check out my weekly Peterborough Diary gossip column out at 7pm on Fridays on the Telegraph's website and in Saturday's brilliant Soraway newspaper. Thanks to my guests this week, Lee Anderson MP, David Mundell MP and Philip Lee, a former MP. Thanks to my producers, Giles Gear and Louisa Wells. And as ever, thank you to you for listening. And always, if you can, buy a copy of The Daily Telegraph. You won't regret it. Until next time, though, from the Red Lion Pub, cheerio!